from Theatrical Shenanigans, this is The Panel Presents, with... Rachel Rubin Ladatki. Kim Wool. Loretta Bolger-Wish. Tony Tambasco. Hello there, and welcome to another exciting instalment of The Panel Presents, where I, your host, Rachel Feeney-Williams, chat with four other amazing panellists about all things theatrical. So, let's meet our four for this episode, shall we? My first panellist is a Long Island-based stage director and educator with an MFA in directing and a Master of Letters degree from the American Shakespeare Center's partner program with Barry Baldwin University. He's also a proud associate member of the SDC, the union representing both professional stage directors and choreographers. He shares his life with his wife Joanne and son Florenzo, who are his constant muses and sources of joy and inspiration. I am utterly thrilled to have him here. Welcome, Tony Tambasco. Thank you. It's nice to be here. My second panellist is a Jersey Shore resident has written plays, monologues, short fiction, essays, poetry and a novel entitled Bumpy Night on the Walk of Fame. She's had work featured in dozens of venues across the country and has won several theatre and film festival awards. And if all that wasn't enough, she sings and plays guitar in a classic rock band. So a very busy woman indeed. And I look forward to chatting with her. Welcome, Loretta Bolger-Wish. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. My third panellist is a Wisconsin-based playwright, as well as a proud member of the Dramatist Guild of America, the Playwright Centre and Chicago Dramatists. He's a US Army veteran with blue-collar roots who's earned three master's degrees and a PhD. His career as a playwright began in 2018, and since then he's written eight full-length plays, several of which have earned awards and multiple productions, so he's another fabulous person to have on the panel. Welcome, Kim Rule. Hello. It's good to be here, too. <laughs> And last but certainly not least, I have another playwright based in New Jersey. She is a produced and published playwright with a collection that includes eight full-length plays, three musicals and numerous short pieces. She attended Wheaton College and spent a semester at the National Theatre Institute and also holds an MA in theatre from Hunter College. She's also a proud member of the Dramatist Guild, the National Play Exchange, the Playwright Centre and the International Centre for Women Playwrights, which she also serves as a board member. So I think you'll agree, another very busy lady. Welcome, Rachel Rubin Leducky. Thanks, I'm really excited to be part of this. Okay, uh, as always, we start with a question for you all. Uh, what advice would you give to a young person who decided they want to make a living in the theatre or the arts? And um, we'll start with Tony. Hmm. There's no shame in quitting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I mean that sincerely. Like you can make a living in other industries, maybe even a better one. And you can do independent work or community theater, and it may actually be easier for you to do the kind of work that is most relevant to you mm. if you are not depending on it for your paycheck. So if if you if you do start uh, and you are finding that it's not for you, there's no shame in quitting. Uh, you can still make theater beyond the professional world of theater, uh, and you might have an easier time doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Loretta? My advice to anybody, if you are determined to make a living and you really want to give it a try, get in that environment any way that you can, whether it's um, learning, call on the skills you have, cultivate new skills. Just to put you there, you will learn from the people who are doing the work that you want to do, even if you're starting out doing something like lighting or makeup or a PR, whatever is going to work. Volunteer for everything that you can. Be around when the opportunities come up. Mm. And at the same time, you'll be making a living. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, Kim? I think it's particularly difficult, speaking for, as a playwright, to make a living as a playwright. Not very many people do that. 
Mm. Um, but I think if you have other skills, you can still be employed in theater, for instance, if you've got skills in, in design or tech or something like that, or even in administration. Uh, I was just at a theater yesterday and I talked to a young man who is working in the front office, you know, and he he's he's very interested in theater, but he's making his living not by doing the acting or playwriting, but by serving in other capacities. So there's ways to do that. But I guess the main thing is just go in with your eyes wide open. Mm. Yeah. And finally, Rachel. Get very familiar with your discipline, whatever it is. So read everything you can, watch everything you can. And lastly, research your fields, the history of it, opportunities, archives, new technology, know what's going on now and know the buzz. Going back to Tony, uh, with the increasing popularity and production of big budget musicals, how much more important has the technical side of theatre become? And do you think effects could be becoming more important than content? Well, um, I I want to interrogate the question a little bit because <laughs> I think it's all technical. Mm. Uh, on a certain level, like there is no aspect of going to a room and watching somebody perform in a certain space in that room and say lines so that you can hear them in such a way that they convey any sort of meaning uh, and, and, and a nod to the playwrights in a room, words that were written in such a way uh, as to create meeting and tell a story that isn't technical. So I I don't think that technical elements are becoming more or less important. I think that they've always been important and that all of the technique that is involved in creating a work of theater is important. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, we get tied up in knots about uh, production elements because of um, certain ideas about who is and who is not an artist mm -hmm. uh and i and i've seen that word stick in the throats of many of an artistic director who introduced <laughs> the production artisans in the room they just don't want to call them artists because when we go with the actors and the directors and the designers like those are are the real artists um and it's this distinction that we have that there are some people that work with their heads and some people that work with their hands and the people that work with their heads are the artists and for some reason, the people who work with their hands are not. But I, I go back to what I said initially, that every everything that happens in a me, in the mediated space of a theater is technical. Mm. And some of it's new technology, um, some of it's old technology, but it's it's still all technical. I think when it, when it comes down to the whole technical side of things, I'm reminded of a phrase a technician without an actor is fine. An actor without a technician is someone prattling about in the dark. <laughs> I've heard that one too. Um, <laughs> and, and I, and I mean, I, I think the one that I I was uh, grew up with in a, in a way, um, artistically grew up with, was uh, Peter Brook's line about a man walking across an empty space or a person walking across an empty space and being observed by another person, and an act of theater has occurred. A couple of thoughts as a playwright. I actually am aware of what sort of technical elements are going to be required because now, unfortunately, unless you're somebody like Tony Kushner, you can't say that you want a burning book to suddenly appear in the middle of the page, the stage rather. I teach theater now. So I'm impressing that on my students as we work on our first musical together. Rachel, I do understand where the question came from. Um, 
because there are always going to be purists and they're not just playwright purists who think that tech is their worst enemy and it's just going to eclipse the story and the story is going to be irrelevant. But I do think that technology is our best friend if it's used properly. Um, just thinking about other shows, what would Wicked be without that technology? Yeah. What would Back to the Future be? Mm. Um, sometimes the technology, the the extra technology, as I think of it, technology plus, is just to give a bit of a wow factor. It depends how well it's used. So I think it's a valid question. Mm. I, I agree with that. I think technology that serves and furthers the story is great, but you can't have, I mean, even a set design, you can be so consumed with getting everything just right and all these details on the set in the in the end if it doesn't further the story i'm not sure that it's that important mm -hmm. so i i think there's a balance to, to find there and as a playwright i'm always more concerned about the words um but but i i understand that the right lighting the right sound projection and all that stuff uh can help convey that story so i do appreciate that and i i think as a writer i've always thought about a multiple multiple audiences i mean you have the audiences in the seat that pay for the seats but your actors they're another audience you're writing for and if you're not writing roles that people want to play you're missing something if you if you're not writing plays that get a, a director passionate you're missing something and if you don't write a play with the, the designers considered you're really missing an audience there as well so i try to consider all those audiences when writing mm -hmm. I think it's a characteristic that actors, directors, and designers share is they all like to be challenged. Like well, the best some of the best plays that I've either seen or taken part in, I've walked away thinking, yes, that was hell of a challenge, but it was definitely worth it. It's it's getting to a point of remembering that as you said, Tony, technology has developed, but so has the world of theatre. It's a case of remembering there is more. It, there is just as much, if not more, going on behind the curtain as there is going on in front of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and well, not necessarily even just in uh, behind it, but all, all around it. And, to the and sides of it, the back of the theater, etc. <laughs> yeah, you spotlights and you got programmers in the back. And, I, and that's like when I started uh, with technical theater, you know, like if you were a lighting person, like there were maybe like a handful of consoles and it was just kind of expected that you would know them all. But now lighting consoles are so sophisticated that probably you're looking to bring in somebody who knows Ion um, or or the, the EOS family of consoles. Or maybe if you don't have that on your team, you're going to bring in a programmer specifically for them. As a high school theater teacher, I'm just getting a program going and it is a career and technical education program. And I have a lot of students that come into the class not wanting to act. So the first thing I try to impress upon them is how many different things you can do in theater before I even mm -hmm. talk about the benefits that it's going to give them. Because to 14-year-olds, they're like, yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I talk about all the different things they can try. And both the show that I did in the fall, which was my first one here, and the one I'm working on now, the amount of people doing crew is the same as the amount of people in the cast mm. and they're just dying to do that they're thirsty to do that and that's going to be part of how we build the program is putting tech theater into every year yeah absolutely so tony your final thought there's as many production artistry uh 
aspects as as there are production elements and and they all scale up just like all of the problems of theater um you know as, as a playwright with a one-man show in a in a 20 seat cabaret theater like your your problems are not going to go away once you add directors and and more actors and more lights they're just going to scale up um and and knowing that you have a team of artists who are working with you who know those tools of their art um, and I'm going to keep using that word deliberately for that reason, uh, and who can enhance your production using the tools and and technique of their art is going to let you create a better show than if you were just like, ah, just, you know, bring in the curtains, bare stage, turn on all 500 lights that you have, and hopefully it'll be lit well enough for, for us all to see the actor uh, who's <laughs> coming out and whatever they pulled from their closet. Loretta, proscenium arch has long been the most popular and used staging of theatre, but what other style of staging do you think we should see more of? That is an interesting question, especially um, right after COVID threw all the cards up in the air uh, as far as theatre went. Mm. But the proscenium arch, there is still a grandeur to it. Um, I think it's hundreds of years old, and I think it has always been a way to take you out of your own life and see something being portrayed in front of you. And I, I think for the most part, we like our stories framed that way because long, long before, long after the proscenium arch um, became popular, we started uh, framing things in movies and framing them on TV and now even on our phones and on our laptops. And I think it's a way of lending something a little special to the experience. Mm -hmm. um, but having said that, there's so, if there's one thing that I would like to see, and I, I have a preference as a rule for three-sided, uh, the, the, the thrust or the apron mm -hmm. where an audience can be on three sides, but there is still room um, for things to go on behind you. Mm -hmm. um, but if there's one thing I would like to see more of, it is, I think, diversity, because there are so many ways now, and, and COVID made even more an, an explosion of ways to stage theater. Um, we had more outside theater, more, um, well, even before COVID, at the shore, we have a gazebo on the boardwalk that put on Shakespeare for mm -hmm. several years. We have... Um, a theater that uses nothing but characters on fire escapes. Um, I recall seeing my granddaughter in a production of Aladdin that was in a library story space. And this goes back to technology again, as Tony was talking about. As long as it can be done well and the story can be conveyed properly, um, there are so many more places that can become theater space now. And especially theaters are, I know of several theater groups that are losing their venues and it will become so important for them to be able to go someplace else and tell their story and have an audience see it. Mm. Now, in some cases, I think um, the, the better, and again, it depends on story. You know, it depends on practical matters like like technology and like where people are able to tell their story. 
there are some stories that are better told in a more interactive way. Mm -hmm. I think as a rule, we want to take ourselves out of our own lives, but there are stories that are better told with us being part of the experience. Mm -hmm. And for that, it's just wonderful to have the, the black box, to have the audience close to the theater and have um, the players coming in and down the aisles. Um, I had one of my first uh, productions in Houston um, was of a, a, a speed dating story. And the director was innovative enough um, to have the audience, unbeknownst to them, um, as Kelly is trying her first speed dating experience, people in the audience at random were chosen, guys were chosen to be her prospective date. And she was slapping name tags on them. <laughs> and they were astonished by it, but the audience just absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. um, I know there are other plays where the audience becomes part of it, but I think there is a, thank God there are so many ways you can tell a story now and, and portray what you want to portray. Um, and I would like to see that continue. I would like to see more, more venues and, and more means of telling stories. Mm, absolutely. There's, there's so many, the ones I love is you uh, disuse buildings or run down buildings. You have it quite, if you're over here, you have it in um, old castles, uh, abandoned hotels. Um, there was one I saw that took place on a disused railway platform. Um, there was one, it wasn't done over here. I forget where it was, but they performed in a cave underground. Mm -hmm. And it just, I say, it, it it draws you into the atmosphere of the piece as well as just kind of seeing it kind of up there <laughs> in a in a frame on a stage. Um, one of the big ones that they that you see quite a lot, especially over here, is the, um, Agatha Christie's um, witness for the prosecution, and the oh, audience okay. the audience makes up the jury box. What a great idea. Um, my daughter and I saw the Broadway revival of Once on this Island shortly before it closed, and they did that in the round. And they had, I don't know if they actually had running water on stage, but they had something that looked like a stream. They had live goats. And they actually had a, a real tree for the beginning where she comes out of the tree. So that was that was really something. Some of the most memorable theater that I've seen has been in some of the really small uh, places in Chicago. They've got kind of a historical tradition of doing plays in basements and, and garages and things like going back to Mamet, you know. And uh, I saw a production of Killer Joe that was in this very small space. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting in the front row and I could reach out and touch the actors if I wanted to. And, and those kind of experiences, those, those small intimate ones, uh, this is a very dramatic piece, you know, and it could be staged in a much larger venue. But uh, uh, to me, that that really made it memorable, mm. having that kind of intimacy. There are so many different places that could work for theater. When we had no money um, when we were in London and seeing theater. So we saw one show in the one of the, the top shows of the day and then saw a lot of shows in different venues. And it occurred to me that the theater people in London were just so imaginative. Yeah, I've seen I've seen several pub plays 
so uh, it, I think it's Connor McPherson wrote the Weir, and it's set in a pub. And then to actually be in the pub and being served beer as you're watching the people at the bar play <laughs> out the play, it's, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. You're, get, you're getting that a lot. It's kind of like dinner dinner and a show theatre where it's like, it's either done in, I say, or pubs or bars or, or restaurants and it's kind of all done in that one um, location. Yeah, I guess what we're, we're dancing around here is that uh, to a degree, this is all a function of like, where can you afford to put the show? Um, and and sometimes we we do things on purpose. And and where I went to grad school at the American Shakespeare Center, they have a recreation of the Blackfriars, which is deliberately built as as a thrust stage to to echo uh, the the playhouse that Shakespeare and company used. Um, and there are other playhouses like that. But sometimes, if you're doing say Shakespeare in the parking lot, um, well, the best arrangement of chairs may be thrust. Um, and, and if you're fortunate enough to be working in one of those storefront or basement spaces that allow you to reconfigure things a bit, you might decide, aha, well, this, we don't have the budget to create a, an expansive set or as expansive a set as we want to, but if we do it thrust, we don't have to, because then the focus becomes on the actors in front of us. And in fact, large pieces of scenery get in the way. Um, and, and, and that's, that's a way to minimize that sort of thing. But it can also create effects of of being, um, as, as Loretta says, in that action. Um, and I know the ASC's particular style is to make that as uh, inclusive to the audience as possible, which is, you know, their their variation on what we think Shakespeare's plays were actually like. I think for me, though, the other thing with proscenium, especially when you go to a theatre in the West End, you've got the proscenium, but then you've got the old um, mouldings and the decoration around the top from where... From the originals and to me I always find myself looking at it thinking that looks like the frame of a painting and then you think well that's how paintings were made you, you took this very nice picture and you put a frame around it and you put it on a wall and it's like theatre's kind of done that we've taken this frame that is proscenium arch we've made this picture we've put it on a stage and here it is for you rather than it's just I say it's more display than interactive yeah and and there's truth to that and that goes into the history of the theater uh you know especially when we look about the history of our theater really coming from the french theater where there was a lot of artistry in like we have these gorgeous painted backdrops and they'll come in a, in such a way at such a time to create the setting and you you literally did have a a large painting on stage and sometimes we still do that and and backdrops are still a, a key part of our productions increasingly it's becoming video work um because just painting a, a 30 foot by 20 foot painting like that's expensive and hard um but but we've just sort of inherited that that mode from you know 1660 on as sort of the default way of viewing theater yeah absolutely uh Loretta, your your final thought on your question um, I guess I would go back to diversity again um, and how important it is to be able to to have theater, no matter where it is you have it, as long as it's done well, well acted and well told and well produced. And still, um, I think there's always going to be part of us, no matter what, where our theater is and how we're enjoying the story and how we're enjoying the experience. Um, I think there's always going to be room for the proscenium. And I think um, that's going to be the sort of gold standard of theater. 
as I said earlier, um, frame that, make it special, make it an event. Kim, what do you think are the positives and negatives of a playwright directing their own work? Well, I think it's mostly positive. Um, and in full transparency, I'm I'm still like, very much a novice director. So I'm, I'm a playwright. I directed my first fully staged play last year and I've only done three, but mm -hmm. they've been great learning experiences. The first one I did was uh, a large cast play done for a community theater. And I went into it um, kind of intimidated, but willing to be vulnerable. Fortunately, I had a great stage manager and I had some very talented actors. And because it was a large cast, so the, the line load for any particular actor wasn't very tough. So uh, that that helped a lot. And uh, we worked on the timing and the blocking and I just had a lot of help and I asked for help and and it went really well. It was a very successful production. And I had a great experience. I thought, my God, I, I want to do this again. And you always learn, you always learn more about your work. Your work gets better. Directing for me um, has gotten me out of my comfort zone. You never learn when you're comfortable. So mm. it's good to get out of your comfort zone. Um, I I learned more, more about my own work. Uh, I got a better appreciation for not only working with actors, of course, but also now I, I'm better able to empathize with the director if I'm if I'm writing something and thinking about okay, what what are the considerations the director is going to have in when they're reading the script and and considering producing it, um, and the designers as well. So I think I think it's just helped me all around. I, I would say that if you're serious as a playwright, taking an opportunity to direct your own work or any work, but particularly your own work. Uh, it's kind of an essential part of your development and your education. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been for me. Um, so I, d I don't know. I don't know that there's any negatives other than uh, you will probably experience some disappointments and failures. Um, but those aren't necessarily negatives because they're, they're really uh, learning experiences or they have been for me. Yeah, I think that uh, the, you know, I, and I've done it like I've I've directed things I've written. Um, and I would always encourage anybody who wants to do anything in theater to do all of the other things. So you, Kim now knows like, like how, how do you think of lighting, uh, in, in practical terms, not just theoretical ones. Um, but it's, you know, when I look at a new script, it's my job to, to look at like, what are the playwrights intentions? Um, and, and to translate them into the space that I'm working. And sometimes that, leads to awkward conversations where it's like you know you've you've specified a blackout here but we're using universal lighting and and we're in an intimate thrust and not a proscenium so i don't have these options available how like here's how i would i would handle it do you have a better way um like would you would you like to write a couple playoff lines to get them off stage or sort of that sort of thing like i have to have them exit i can't just disappear them and then bring them back I, I want somebody who's passionate about my story, passionate and, and wants to do this play, that that has to do that play. That's the director that I want. So I, I really appreciate that. The, the one I never quite understand is when a production company chooses to do a play and then change it and then cite the grounds that, oh, we had to because the language wasn't appropriate or we didn't, we couldn't talk, we didn't want them to talk about the subject matter. It's like, you knew what the play was about when you decided to do it, right? 
It's like if you if you know the player's got swearing in it, do something else. Don't take it and change it. <laughs> right. You're you're actually um not if it's a published play, you're not permitted to change a word. No. I mean, yeah. you're not permitted to change a word anyway without permission. Yeah. yeah. I, I've been very fortunate that I have a director who I've been working with a long time and she's a dramaturg also, and she just gets my work. But I had a production of a full length a couple of years ago and they asked me if I wanted to direct it. And fortunately, I said no, because I ended up having to play one of the leads in it with four days notice. So that was pretty damn terrifying. Well, I think that the the missing piece of that puzzle, though, is that what is the director or the artistic director responding to and seeing as the thing that they want to put on stage versus what would their community object to? And and that's something that I would say as, as a director working with a company, with an outside company, like you've got to rely on the artistic director to be that ambassador for the community and, and let you know, like, what does this community tolerate? What what will be shocking here? Um, because what is shocking in, say, Newark, Ohio, is not shocking in New York City. Um, and I think that that I would approach it as as a sometime playwright myself. Uh, well, why do you want to change these words that I wrote? Mm -hmm. And And maybe the answer is like, you know, why do you want to do the play that, that I wrote that has these words in it? It's like, well, I really love the theme of X, Y, or Z that you developed, but our community is a conservative one and using this kind of language on stage would detract from their experience of those things. Um, and I think as, as we have this global marketplace available to us, you know, as 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 really you can from the middle of of a farm in the Midwest of the United States, write a play that is then going to get performed in London, um, and it and it can happen so easily. Like you have to be aware that different places will have different standards. Um, they will have different mores. They will they will just have different attitudes towards things. Um, and I think if you begin from the place that there is something about your play my play that they wanted to do um and and go from there then then maybe you will see your own play in a new way and maybe we get into the thing where the cursing is is like well there's three three exits does it really matter that there's three exits or can there be one exterior and one interior like does the cursing really central to this theme they would like to develop uh or is it something that can be left out and and present the play in this way and i i think so. i'm also a little more agnostic about this because like the the production of the play that gets published again with permission like you never have to incorporate their changes back into your script you know like no nobody else in the world has to know that there was a production of this play staged at this one place in this one time that didn't have this swearing in it um, and quite frankly, if any critics or reviewers are to publish commentary about your play where strong, and I keep harping on strong language because that's, I, I think that's what came up, um, where where they specifically talk about it, it's likely to be in in a negative. Like, you know, there there was, like, it was gratuitous and it was out of place in this community. And is that really what you want to be said about your play when perhaps there was this other theme that meant more to you 
um, that you were developing using the language of your space and time that would be out of place someplace else. So this is a Rachel, unbelievable way of saying like, what is the, the the real point that you want to develop? I've been asked a time or two to soften language uh, for Southern audiences, older Southern religious audiences. And it really didn't make any difference. The story came across just fine with the softened language. Um, it, it wasn't central. It would have irritated me if I had not been asked. I hadn't realized that sometimes the plays are chosen not solely for the caliber of the play, but also because a director has responded to it. They'll have a bench of directors. Yeah, that's often the way it works. Like an artistic director wants to know like, what plays do you want to do? Um, and they're going to expect that you're you're going to point and maybe they will or will not want you to direct that play. Uh, but but it's like, you know, send a proposal that includes like what you want to direct. Um, so. OK, uh, Kim, your final thought on the subject. I think that uh, every playwright should direct if they have a chance. It's going to be uh, overwhelmingly a positive experience, certainly a learning experience. And uh, the really only negative thing I can think about it is that it's kind of all consuming. So you're not going to get any writing done while you're, while you're directing. <laughs> Rachel, David Landy recently reworked the kidnapping scene in Seven Brides and Seven Brothers to make it less sexist. In light of that, do you think the best way to deal with material that hasn't aged well is to try and update it or to put it out to pasture or to leave it to its true form? So... I think it depends on the context and the intent. And I'm going to start with going back to Greek theater. Tragedy wasn't meant to elevate or praise the behavior of the tragic hero, but it was meant to represent flaws and show them and also to entertain. A lot of the characters in Greek drama take actions which are, to say the least, not admirable. They don't only represent their time, but they reflect the morality of that time and the belief that their characters thought that they were omnipotent, such as Creon and Antigone. When you look at Shakespeare, his work has stood the test of time. But there's so much reactionary fervor going on right now that I think we're starting to go too far in the other direction. I think... There isn't an across-the-board determination to be made. If you look back at musicals like Showboat and South Pacific, they're showing the realities of their society. And they have to be honored as such because it shows us something. It teaches us something. And it gives us a new perspective on things that we may not be that familiar with. If the creators decide that it's okay to revisit their work for whatever reason, of course, they're entitled to do so, but I don't think that they should be pressured or compelled to do so. And it kind of goes back to us saying, you know, if you want to do a show, if it matters to you, then choose that show. And if not, look for something else. My musical theater students and I just started studying West Side Story and I chose to show them the new version of the movie. But while there are some changes in the movie as far as the plot and the structure, I think the main thing that improves on it 
is that they had the characters very rooted in their culture. So I don't think that it's only the material itself, but it's how it's presented that needs to be looked at. Um, and if there's a piece that you have problems with as far as the material, there are still things you can do without it being changed. You can change the emphasis of it with the director's concept, for example. I also think that there's a trend sometimes towards having sort of a focus group with plays. So you have to be careful when you're working on a play when it's new, not to get too invested in everyone else's opinion. What I'm gonna say is that I personally believe that material should only be updated if the creators think that it's necessary and not because we want to reflect our current society. There's always going to be objections and complaints, but that doesn't mean it should be looked at as if it shouldn't exist. If you don't like it, do something else. Yeah. I say there's there's so so much out there that has air quotes not aged well um but at the same time you know it was popular when it was made for a reason and it continues to be popular for a reason so because certain collectives don't like certain elements it doesn't mean if you say it should be written out of existence altogether i mean the producers is a classic example um of that so i've i've had friends who've never seen it who've watched it and gone oh my god i can't believe this was made it's like why there's way there's way worse stuff. I mean, they they turned South Park into a musical for God's sake. Eh. Yeah, and when my son saw it, he was fourteen, and he came out of it even saying that was too much for me. So for a fourteen year old boy to say that was really something. Um, you know, also there are so many shows where they'll create a high school version, a junior version, even a kids version. I'm doing the Adams family right now with my students and there's just the occasional line that's a little bit over the top because I like to do the full version of things. And it says in the script that you can leave this out if you want to. Well, there's not too many, but we're leaving out two and we're leaving in two. So mm -hmm. I'm just going with what the students are comfortable with. Sometimes an update is a very easy fix though. Um, and I don't see the harm really. Uh, take Carousel. I was horrified to realize that Carousel has become so popular now. Um, and all you really need to do, Billy is a character that is redeemed in the end, but he is a character that physically abuses his wife. And it's presented as, isn't this romantic? I, I love him anyway. I mean, I realize you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, there weren't, there was no shelter for Julie, who was an orphan, to go to. But to glamorize that, um, if you take out the references to his hitting her and just make him somebody who is troubled and is pays the price and then is redeemed eventually. Um, the other thing that is treated way too lightly um, is suicide. Cactus flower, Tony tries to kill herself because she's 
in love with a married man. Sabrina has unrequited feelings for David. Um, and you notice in the update of the film, the suicide attempt where Linus um, finds her in time, that is completely dropped because suicide is now not considered romantic, let alone cute, you know, for mm -hmm. a woman to attempt. And it takes nothing from an original story to just drop one element like that. I think we just need to be mindful about the essence of Carousel. is a It's a beautiful story in many ways. Yeah. It's, dif it's difficult as well because there's, as you say, there's, there's so much that... The reason it hasn't aged well is because it's a reflection of the time. So, I mean, how how far do we take it? Because you can't... You couldn't take something like Gone with the Wind and apply that theory because the way people are um people speak to people and the way people speak about certain topics is a reflection of the time well seven brides for seven brothers is an interesting example because um they're kidnapping the women to marry them mm. and in the end they're the ones that learn a lesson so it's interesting that they felt the need to kind of revise that where harold hill is still allowed to be a seducer of virginal librarians all over the Midwest. And we think that's funny because he falls in love and puts his whole uh, con artist routine at risk. Um, I think, you know, who is, who is redeemable is, you know, and I, I think is the larger question. As much as we don't want to, we obviously we talked about not playing with the the artist's work, and obviously as playwrights and as people who appreciate the art, we don't you don't want to start fiddling about with the stuff because it's it in a way it is disrespectful. But at the same time, when where is the line when something that was written many many years ago you can suddenly say okay, this is aged, not great. We're going to have to fix it or change it. Well, I mean, I think that that just really gets back to what I was saying earlier. Like, is is the swearing important or is there another theme that's important? And as uh, as mortal beings who will one day die, like, you know, it's our, our executors then become the inheritors of this and they get to decide what was the important part of this play to uh to to this person um and eventually it enters the public domain and it's out of our hands yeah. um and, and so it kind of becomes removed and more situated to wherever it's performed um mm -hmm. and i get like i i will i will fall on the line like it, you know what is the important part of it to you and is it possible that somebody is reaching out to you and asking you to remove a part of your play because they don't understand how important it is to the plot um or perhaps are you not considering how um how how your your words which you wrote with an, a different intention are being received and somebody is kind of like just so you know this is how i take that um and what do you do with that when when it's new information for you and then you have to think about like you know what what will it be like after i'm gone uh and will how would my family respond to that and and if you really care that much i guess you would leave detailed instructions like some playwrights have 
um, about what what is important and how you would like it handled. Um, or alternate versions like they have in the high school versions. Yeah, so. but but I mean, I, I you know, all, all plays take place at a specific time and in a specific place. Um, and, and sometimes it, it happens to be at, at our, our local theater. And sometimes it happens to be across the world. And sometimes it, it might be decades in the future, uh, with people who have no connection to us other than they read something in, in one of our plays and responded to it enough to want to stage it. But certain aspects of it are reprehensible to them or objectionable in some way. And and they they want to leave those parts out and focus on what they think is the most beautiful thing about our work. Rachel, your final thought on the subject. My last word on that is that people sometimes take plays and write a response to them, which is sort of not an adaptation, but a different version. And I was reading recently about a response that a playwright wrote to The Crucible and I do not remember her name, unfortunately, but the title of the play is John Proctor was a villain or John Proctor is the villain or something along those lines. And I'm intrigued to read that because I'd like to see how she her take on it. OK, final question for all of you. Who is your favorite theatrical character? And we'll start with Rachel. Prior Walter from Angels in America, because with everything he goes through, he persists and what he wants is more life i just think that's beautiful uh kim i like uh i like all of mamet's uh gritty dramatic characters from glengarry glenn, glenn ross if i have to pick one i'd probably say teach from american buffalo uh especially after i saw some sam rockwell's uh, portrayal on broadway it was so brilliant uh it was it was very gripping uh loretta uh, I think it'd have to be Jolly Gallagher Levi from The Matchmaker uh, by Thornton Wilder, the original of Hello, Dolly. Um, she is has such life force. She is fearless and um, touches everyone's life and finally conquers her own fear about uh, learning to love again. And finally, Tony. The anonymous servant who stands up to Cornwall to defend Gloucester in King Lear. Um, he does what he feels is morally right, even though he almost certainly knows it will cost him his life and he will fail in his objective. Uh, and yet he still has an incredible impact on the outcome of those events. Uh, okay, we are out of time, guys. Thank you so much for being here and discussing all these amazing subjects. It's been phenomenal. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this month's episode of The Panel Presents. I hope you enjoyed my chat with my panellists and can join us again on the 6th of April with four fresh new faces. In the meantime, however, we have coming up on the 8th of March our special for International Women's Day that will feature four plays by female playwrights as well as chat with them. Then continuing to the 10th of March, our Mini Shenanigans series continues with a piece by regular voice actor Darren Ingram. And I also want to remind you that our submission window for our festive special 12 Plays of Christmas is still open until the end of March. So if you have a play of 10 pages or less with a festive theme that is written for audio, then by all means send it in to rfwscripts at gmail.com, where it could join 11 other plays in our Christmas special in December 2024. 
I look forward to seeing you again for the next episode, but in the meantime though, I've been Rachel Feeney-Williams, this is Theatrical Shenanigans, bringing down the curtain and saying, I hope you can join us next time. Theatrical Shenanigans, part of an RFW Scripts production, found on Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean, and anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Music is written and produced by Chris Cody.